Welcome to The Prism Effect, a podcast with me, Larry Knoll, lead pastor of The Light in Kent. Just as prisms break light up into its spectral colors, I hope to help you discover the scripture's meaning for your life. First of all, it's great to have those who are here for the first time today, and we've welcomed them already, and and um, just so glad to have you. And we have people here that may be joining us for the first time through our streaming uh, service. And right now you would be watching this on Facebook. Later you'll be watching it on YouTube. So we're just glad that you've joined us, however you've done that. And whether you're here or there, we would encourage you, if you're ever in the Kent area, though, uh, stop on by on a Sunday morning around 1045. We'll stick a donut and a cup of coffee in your hand, and then we'll try to hug you at the same time, and it's very sloppy, but we have fun, okay? So glad to have you with us here. We are the Lighting Kent. My name is Larry Knoll. I'm the pastor, and um, we are, I just realized, you know, that we have been around Kent doing this for nine years. We're not the new kid on the block anymore. So we are on the block, though. We're on South Water Street, and you can find us between Domino's and Dairy Queen and Kemp. You can go to our website. It has all of our information, and we'd love for you to leave us a message and just let us know you were with us today. Uh, even if it's just a heart or a thumbs up on Facebook, it's nice to hear from you, and we try to respond as quickly as possible to all those things. Now let me read a letter to you. This is really official stuff here. This came from... Um, a guy named Timothy M. Hill, Doctor of Divinity. And he is a general overseer of the Church of God. Now, up until this year, we were just an independent church, and um, meaning we didn't have an association directly with uh, denomination. And so uh, we decided this year it would be a good idea to seek that out. And so we did. And so what's it going to change? Really nothing, except Alex has to do extra work. He has to make reports that he probably hasn't done yet, and we've got to catch up on for this month. But anyhow, we'll do that. We'll do that. We don't even know how to do that. But uh, we decided to <clears throat> associate with the Church of God. We're in unity with their doctrinal uh, views, so we felt very comfortable with that. And then we asked the leadership to come and join with us, and, and uh, the bishop in Ohio came and spoke and Ron Martin is just a great guy we all loved him and felt so comfortable with that and so um, you know some of our concerns like you know is it going to change us do we have to do something different and you know he said just keep being who you are in Kent and doing what you're doing so we appreciated that and and it gives us um, you know I know I look really young okay I know how young I look and it's very deceptive but <laughs> the truth is, um, you know, I don't know how long I would be doing this. I'm 64. I know. You thought I was 54, okay? So uh, I don't know how long I would be doing this. And I was like, you know, I would like to make sure we have a successor. I think this church deserves to continue on even when I don't want to be the pastor or don't feel called to be the pastor anymore. So... Uh, part of success is finding a successor, and so that would always be available to us is pulpit supply, one of the benefits of having them. And also, if we were to buy a church building, which we have been looking at lately over on the other side of town, there's one available. Um, you know, that's a great help when you go to get a loan, is that you have a large organization behind you. So those were a couple of the things that we thought would be good, and... Um, so this is what he says. He says, Christian greetings. I want to personally commend you on organizing, which means that's their word for um, becoming official. Okay. We were already, we're not very organized, so don't tell them that. But on organizing the lighting kit. And so usually this happens like the first year you do something like a church plant. It, it only took us eight and a half years. Okay. It just took us eight and a half years because we weren't really thinking about doing that. This is a testimony of God's goodness. Can we say amen? amen? And the commitment of individuals and your dedication to ministry. May the ministries of your church be a blessing in your city and community. 
On behalf of the International Executive Committee, I want to welcome your church into fellowship with the Church of God. Your state overseer, Ron Martin, will be able to offer leadership to you, and and he really already does. And I encourage you to develop a productive working relationship with him. There are resources and programs available for your congregation on the Church of God website, churchofgod.org. We have begun a partnership of working together for the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. And I pledge to you my prayer support for you and your ministry. May God grant you wisdom and anointing to reach the harvest. May God continue to bless you and the church as we engage in the finished commitment. So there we go. We are official, officially on the books there. And um, I think it's going to be a great partnership. And, you know, it's something that uh, the board... We weren't thinking about doing. We weren't like, hey, we need to do this. But it just seemed to, God just put some things together, and we said, maybe we should think about this. And, um, you know, it started back in January, and it came to uh, fruition just lately. So we're thankful for their support, aren't we? And that they're praying for us, and that, you know, they're there for us if we need help. And so... Uh, it's a great organization. My grandfather was a part of it. My grandmother, they were both ministers in it. My dad, my grandfather, my dad, dad's side, my grandmother, my mom's side. So did I stand a chance of not being a minister? Probably not, okay? It was just going to happen. So we're doing a seven-part series on Second Samuel. And if you read the Bible and you know the scriptures, this is dealing with king david at this point he's no longer the shepherd boy there's been this you know he's done all that he's worked his way through um that phase of his life after he killed goliath of course he became famous and became a little bit of a problem for then king saul because he became more popular than king saul it wasn't david's fault he just killed a giant he did what the king needed okay and god anointed him for that and um, as time went on, uh, they actually became enemies, even though he married one of Saul's daughters and Saul's um, son, Jonathan, was his best friend. So even though he had that kind of relationship, the king became a mortal enemy of his and tried to wipe him out. But eventually David, you know, God used David and David made it through all that and sometimes we have to do that we have to make it through we have to survive circumstances and God had anointed him to be king when he was just a boy and now it was happening he became the king of Israel and so we're talking about those events that shaped David's life and today my message is recovering from your failures this ought to be good for all of us okay some of these messages are like, well, it might not apply to everybody. I'm just going to say, I think we all probably have messed up a time or two in our life, right? If you're over five years old, you could probably say that, all right? <laughs> and so we have failed others. We've failed ourselves. We have even feel like we've failed God. And I think it's just a part of our life. The question is, what do you do when it happens? What do you, what do, you do when it happens? What, when you feel that you have failed, what is your response to that? So we're going to look at what David did and maybe take a lesson from this and apply it to our own lives. So let me talk about something maybe just off topic here a little bit, but it'll come back into focus. Have you or anybody you've ever known suffered from addiction of any kind in your life? It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It could be other things. Anybody you know or you yourself okay so we don't know if you're holding your hand up for you or somebody else so that's cool right well i learned something about addiction and i i was able to observe addiction in a family member once very very closely and it's a very hateful thing it's a very destructive thing and we're going to talk about collateral damage i think next week about collateral damage that happens in sin but there are these phases that if you know about these, you can actually spot them in another person's life. 
And if it's in your own life, you can look back and see how you got into this mess. And I was reading about this on AmericanAddictionCenters.org's website. And it says, first of all, there's the initial use, there's the abuse, then there's the tolerance, then there's the phase called dependence, then addiction, and then relapse. So there's this cycle, basically, that happens. A person you know, realizes where they're at over time, the, the, you know, they need to get out of this, and then they try, and then there's the, the relapse. And I know people that have gone into, uh, when I was trying to get a family member into a um, drug rehab place, you know, it was going to take like every penny I had to do that for them. And the person said, by the way, this is just going to probably be the first time you put them in a place like this. And I was like, really? I mean, this doesn't do it. And they're like, no, this is just the first installment. So be ready. For, are you ready for that? So there's that relapse that happens in a person's life. So I'm not here to talk about addiction, but I'm here to talk about how that it's very similar to the sin cycle. We have phases of our life that involve sin that are very much like that. And James, if we go to James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, we're just going to shoot to the New Testament real quick before we go back to the Old Testament. James makes an observation about sin that's very similar to these phases. He says... But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So I was like, hey, look, in that scripture, there's phases of an unrepentant life that I can see very clearly similar to what addiction has. First of all, there's, he says there's these unsanctified desires, these desires for things that we shouldn't do. It's our desires, by the way, okay? Don't go, the devil made me do it, okay? <laughs> don't pull a Flip Wilson there. If you're old, you don't know who that is. But don't blame it on Satan all the time. There are things that we just like, things that are they feel good to us and sometimes they're actually even good things they start off as good things and so there's these unsanctified desires though that we just have because we're human beings and that's what he says they're your desires okay and then we visualize those sinful acts we go hmm i could see myself doing that right man i can see myself with that person right ladies I can see myself be in that circumstance. You see, we begin to visualize what that would be like, and then we act out the sin. See, when you start, whatever's in your mind to do, you usually end up doing eventually. It might take a while, but what happens is that's, that's like a seed to action. And so we eventually, we act out the sin, and it's usually like this much. We go, see, doesn't happen. I guess it's okay. You know, and then we keep increasing, increasing, increasing our activity in that sinful whatever it is. And then we justify our sin. That's what he's saying here. We go, you know, I really don't think this is a sin. I don't think because I don't feel sinful doing it. See, we're relying on our feelings then because it feels so good doing it. It's it's a good thing, right? So I. I think people are wrong about this. I think the word of God might be, I might have read it wrong for years, okay? My Sunday school teacher was wrong. My pastor was wrong. Everybody else is wrong, but I got this right. And then spiritual death happens. So, you know, after justification becomes this spiritual death, he says when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. That means we probably know it's wrong and we don't give a rip, you know? And, and we feel so bad a lot of times. We look at ourselves and our, our man, the way, the way we feel about ourselves is terrible. But we don't care anymore. It's like, well, whatever. You know, my life's never going to change, whatever. We lose all hope. That's spiritual death. So I was looking at that scripture and I was like, so how does sin happen? How does sin happen, okay, in our life? 
And, uh, and, and so we can look at this. We're going to go to 2 Samuel now, the Old Testament, chapter 11. We're going to see how sin happens. We're going to see a real-life story here. I mean, how many love God, right? Hold up your hand. I love God. Yeah. How many, with the other hand, have ever sinned? Okay? I love God, but I sin. I don't get it. I love God, and I sin. Okay? And so we know when we sin that we sin not only against ourselves, but against God, right? We're violating a relationship with Him. So why do we even sin when we know it's not good? Why do we let ourselves do that? Why do we fall into these things? So I don't know if you have the message translation or not, but I'm going to read from the message, and she may put a different translation up. That's okay. But I like the way this this. It sounds like I'm reading from a novel, so I kind of like the way this rolls. It says, when at the time, and this is a lot of scripture, so you might want to, you know, just get comfortable here. Is it okay to read a lot of scripture? Yes. This is a whole story, and I can't, you know, t- can't tell it any better than this. So when that time of the year came around again, the anniversary of the Ammonite aggression, you remember that one? We talked about that a few weeks ago. David... So they must have, like, had a remembrance of that every year, the annual thing. So David dispatched Joab and his fighting men of Israel in full force to destroy the Ammonites for good. Okay? We beat them to a pulp pretty much the first time, but now I'm just sick and tired. I keep hearing some bragging going on. We're just going to go wipe them out. We're just going to annihilate them. So they laid siege to Rabbah, which David, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Now remember this, but David stayed where? And the army was where? In Rabbah, fighting. David's in Jerusalem. David, wait, isn't he this incredible, masculine, beautiful specimen of a man who was this leader, talented, songwriter, everything else? I mean, he was everybody's hero and he's staying back now with the women and the he men they're all going into battle think about that one so here's what happens verse two one late afternoon david got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace now isn't it nice he gets a nap when everybody else is in battle isn't that just nice yes And from his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was stunningly beautiful. See, don't you like this version better? And David sent to ask about her and was told, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent his agents to get her, of course. And after she arrived, he went to bed with her. And this occurred during the time of purification following her period. Then she returned home. Okay, and before long, she realized she was pregnant. And later she sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. So David then got in touch with Joab, sent Uriah the Hittite to me, he said. And Joab sent him. And when he arrived... David asked him for news. Now, stop. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband, correct? He calls Uriah out of battle because they don't have texting, they don't have Google News, anything like that. So he's like, this is a good excuse to get him out of battle. I want to get a report. So he calls him out, and, he's, and when he arrived, David asked him for news from the front. How things were going with Joab and the troops and with the fighting. Then he said to Uriah, Hey, thanks for coming and telling me that. Go home. Have a refreshing bath and a good night's rest. You got to get this part here, right? You know the rest. And after Uriah left the palace, an informant of the king was sent to him. But Uriah, what's he thinking? He doesn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance along with the king's servants. What a nut. You could go home to your wife, but you're so loyal to the king who's messed around with your wife, got her pregnant, but you're so loyal to this guy that you do what you're supposed to do. You stay at the palace so you can be ready 
for whatever the king needs from you because you are not home. You are still in battle. And you are on official business. That's why he didn't go home. So David was told that Uriah had not gone home and he asked Uriah, why didn't you just come off of a hard trip? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah replied to David, the chest, what is the chest? The ark, the ark of the covenant. The chest is out there with the fighting men of Israel and Judah in tents. They're sleeping in tents on the ground. My master Joab and his servants are roughing it out in the fields. So how can I go home and eat and drink and enjoy my wife on your life? I won't do it. I mean, David's got to think, oh, my goodness, my plan to cover up my sin is going wrong. So, all right, said David, have it your way. Stay for the day and I'll send you back tomorrow. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem the rest of the day. And the next day, David invited him to eat and drink with him. And David got him drunk. But in the evening, didn't work. Uriah went out and slept with his master's servants again. He didn't go home. I mean, David's trying everything, isn't he? And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Now he's frustrated. The guy will not go home. This cover-up is not going to work. So what's left? See, we're going from bad to worse. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Then pull back and leave him exposed so that he is sure to be killed. There's a conspiracy going on here, isn't there? Joab knows exactly what David's trying to do. So Joab, holding the city under siege, put Uriah in a place where he knew there would be fierce enemy fighters. And when the city's defenders came out to fight Joab, some some of David's soldiers were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent David a full report on the battle, and he instructed the messenger, after you've given the king a detailed report on the battle, if he flares in anger, say, and by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Because he figured he would go into mourning. So if he's mad, like, what? What happened in battle? Are you kidding me? Then he go, oh, by the way, he's dead, you know. He's dead. And he would be like, oh. So Joab's messenger arrived in Jerusalem and gave the king a full report. And he said, the enemy was too much for us. They advanced on us in the open field and we pushed them back to the city gate. But then the arrows came hot and heavy on us from the city wall. And 18 of the king's soldiers died. And when the messenger completed his report of the battle, exactly like Joab thought, David got really angry at Joab and he vented it on the messenger. You know, this is where you get don't kill the messenger. This is it. You're seeing it right here. So why did you get so close to the city? Didn't you know you'd be attacked from the wall? Didn't you remember how Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth, got killed? Wasn't it a woman who dropped a millstone? I love this, this little fact here. Wasn't that a woman dropped a millstone on him from the wall and crushed him at Thebaz? Why did you get so close to the wall? And he says, well, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. He just slid that in so perfectly. He's about to get smacked. And he goes, oh, by the way. Then David told the messenger, oh, hmm, I see. Tell Joab, don't trouble yourself over this. <laughs> it worked. Joab knew what to do. He said, don't trouble yourself over this. War kills. Sometimes one, sometimes another. You never know who's next. What a fake. He set this guy up. And then he acts like, oh. Well, you know, such is life. Redouble your assault on the city and now destroy it. And encourage Joab. So when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she grieved for her husband. And then when the time of mourning was over, David sent someone to bring her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, nothing good. I will just shoot. I will just tell you, nothing came good of that child. The child eventually died. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. If you want to read the rest of this, Nathan the prophet prophesied that. He said, this is a bad thing. And, um, you know, but he did take her as his wife. She did stay as one of his wives. I mean, wouldn't this make a great Netflix miniseries, though? I mean, can you imagine? This would be, people would watch this. It has all the elements of what a network wants 
lust and beautiful men and beautiful women and nudity and cheating and conspiracy and lies and murder and justice in the end. Sounds like all the shows that we watch. But what this is, this is showing us how sin happens. This is showing us how sin. Did you notice the phases of sin that David worked through? Unsanctified desires. What's that? Who's, who's, what woman is this? Now, David's got wives. But it's not enough. He can't have anybody. He has Saul's, remember Michael, who made fun of him when he danced? They must have really had a tough time after that. And now he's looking at other women and he's going, ooh, who's that? So that desire right there, he's coveting another person's wife. And then he begins to visualize himself in sinful acts with her. He begins to fantasize about her to the point where he acts it out. And he says, hey, servants, who will do anything for the king? Go tell her the king wants to see her. Well, done deal. And then justifying our sin. And how does he do that? He tries to cover the sin with more sin. That's the hugest mistake you can ever make in your life. Covering sin with more sin. It just doesn't work. My friend one time, he was like huge. Okay? He's a big boy. And... I know Don knows if I said Pardee, he'd know who I'm talking about. And he's a big boy, big southern boy down in Florida. And Chuck went on this low-carb thing. And I see him, and he's got a bag of pork rinds. <laughs> and I go, I thought you were on a diet. And he goes, there are no carbs in this. I go, no, there's just like a ton of fat. It's all fat. You're eating fried fat. Does that count for anything? He goes, has no carbs. I mean, that's like trying to cover sin with sin. Trying to lose fat with fat. It isn't going to work. He brings Uriah back from war and then he sends him in. And when that doesn't work, that whole scheme of trying to get him to sleep with his own wife to cover it up. And they can say, oh, beautiful child. Then he sends him back out in the battle to make sure he's killed. This is murder, everybody. That's murder. Conspiracy to murder. And then spiritual death. Here's this, the thing with David. He has no guilt for what he's done. Oh, people are killed in battle every day. You know? Kesarasara. War kills. No big deal. His conscience, and let me tell you, here's a problem. When your conscience is seared, you're in trouble. When you no longer. When you can lie and look people right in the face and not blink an eye, you might say, I got a real talent here. <laughs> it could be useful to me. Let me tell you, that's a problem. When you can do things and excuse them, and you're, there's no guilt with this anymore. You, you know how to deal with that guilt. That's, when, that's spiritual death. It really is. Because... God gives us guilt as a natural, say God gives us guilt? Yes. It's a natural reaction to something that should be foreign to us, and that's sin. He didn't create us to sin. He created us to bring him glory. He created us in his image. So there shouldn't be sin. And when there is sin, our soul reacts in a way that's like, and we get knots in our stomach. We get the little eye twitchy thing, you know. When you can lie without the eye twitchy, you're in trouble. And all this began with David enjoying his victories. Now listen close. He stays in Jerusalem while the troops go out to battle. His mind is no longer locked in. It's not focused. He's bored. Listen to what Charles Swindoll says. He says, our greatest battles don't usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we're bored. That's when our greatest spiritual battles seem to happen. Is when we got time on our hands. When we just had a great victory in our life. Something good happened. I hate to tell you this. I mean, we have an enemy. And he is not going to let you have a victory without coming in immediately. I always love football teams that 
they have something great happens and they oh you know the team is like yes and they're just cheering on the field and the crowd feels like the game is over and then the other team is mad because they intercepted their ball and ran it down to the other end and they're mad and while these guys are posing and doing all that stuff you know in the end zone and doing the bird and everything this other team's making a plan and they're going to smack him in the face as soon as they get the ball. And I've seen it happen more than one. You know, they're like, man, we got it now. We're, we're great. And, I mean, third quarter rolls around. They come out of that locker room, and they're mad as hornets. And they come out, and they just bowl right over them. Say, that's, that's kind of how Satan does this with us. You know, it's like, man, God just blessed me. Oh, we just had wonderful things happening. La, da, 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 da. And Satan's like, really? Well, you go ahead and enjoy that. Because I'm working on a new one. And you better be ready. And this is what he did with David. Go ahead and have your victory dance. Go ahead. Enjoy that little dance you did out there in front of everybody and all these victories. And go ahead. Smash the Ammonites. But I'm, I'm going to come in with one you're not expecting. Because you're relaxed. You're okay with life. So... How does God react to sin? This is important. We know how we get into sin, what happens. I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 through 7. It says, but God was not at all pleased. Duh. (laughs) Really? With what David had done? Oh, I am shocked. And sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was the prophet. And he said, there were, here's what, I love this story. He just goes to David and he goes, hey, David, read any good books lately? No. Let me tell you a story. So he says, there were two men in the same city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor man had nothing but one little lamb. Everybody go, aw. Okay. Which he had bought and raised. And it grew up with him and his children as a member of the family. I love how they put the children in there, see? And it ate off his plate. Oh, it's so sweet. And it drank from his cup. And it slept on his bed. Not in my house. And it was like a daughter to him. And David's thinking, what? And one day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man. And he was too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitors. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal to set before his guests. He took what the poor man had. Wow. And so David exploded in anger and he said, as surely as God lives, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must repay for the lamb four times over for his crime and his stinginess. Bah! And guess what Nathan said? You're the man. Woo! I bet David's blood just drained right down to his toes at that point. He said, you're that man who took that little lamb. David had... All these wives. He was the king. And he has to take this one, this man, this loyal soldier's one and only wife from him. Like, you know, I need one more. I mean, I love how Nathan just tells it like it is. And he tells it in this little story kind of catches David off guard. And after David gets all indignant and says that man should be hanged, See, God was calling him out. And I'll tell you, if God calls you out, it shakes you up. We get arrogant sometimes, especially as Christians, because we think we have it all together. And sometimes God calls us out. I don't encourage you to call anybody out unless you're a prophet, okay? And God's using you. But God used Nathan to call David out for his sin. And God does this not to embarrass him, not to tear him up, but because he loves David, he cares for David. And David would be hanged and have to pay restitution 
if he had done what he did, if he had done that to an animal. And he would have definitely had to have been executed if it was known what he did to this man and his wife. And messed up this family, broke it up, ruined somebody's dreams. Because there was a rule. There was called an eye for an eye, wasn't there? So what was God's reason for calling David out? To show him mercy. Now think about this. Knowing he was wrong, David admits his failure upon failure here. Verse 13, then David confessed to Nathan, it says, I've sinned against God. So in response to this story that reveals his sin, he writes a psalm. If we go to Psalm 51, we've we've probably read this psalm. This is why David wrote Psalm Psalm 51. is because his sin had been exposed by Nathan. And it was after all this had happened. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Isn't that beautiful? So he's crying out to God for his mercy. And let me just tell you, where sin flows, God's grace grows. So we're back to where mercy, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Mercy is the theme of David's life. And here it is again. But now he's asking for mercy. He's not showing mercy. David was guilty from day one. And here's the thing. When you are guilty, you live with this tension in your life. Knowing you're wrong, knowing you shouldn't have done it, knowing that it's offense against God, it's disobedience to God, and you live with this, you live with this day and night. You try not to think about it. It comes back. There are things that remind you. And he had to live with this guilt inside of him, and now God requires him to bear the shame of his sin. Because you wouldn't confess this to me like you used to, David, when you'd messed up. Because you wouldn't confess this to me, you have to bear the shame. Others are going to know about it, and it's going to affect you and your, and your family. Because he wants David to see it for what it is. See, there's nothing pretty about it now, is there? There's nothing fun about his sin now. Boy, it was fun. Woo, look at her. Woo. And then... Hi, come on in. See, that's fun. But this side of sin is so despicable. It's so hard. It's, it's destructive. And there's no way he can come up with excuses or reasonings for what he's done. This wasn't fun. It was lust. It was covetousness. It was adultery. It was conspiracy. It was cold-blooded murder. It's about as bad as you can get, guys. And David doesn't even try to excuse this. And he lays everything out here in this psalm. He makes his sin right public, right out there in this psalm. And he finally confesses the sin that God already knew about. So this is the only way we can recover from our failures, everybody. Let's do what David did. Do what David did. Go to the Lord. Fall upon him. He has mercy for us. This is why he sent his son Jesus Christ. You see, many times we're going to fail. And we're even going to choose to live in unconfessed sin. Because we don't want anybody to know. We're ashamed of it. We did something. Or we're continuing to do something. And we just live with this pain of guilt until it affects us physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. But in David's case, we notice that after committing adultery, listen, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, he no longer wrote any more psalms. Did you hear that, band members and musicians? He quit writing those beautiful psalms after Bathsheba because it affected his giftings. This inside of him, this unconfessed sin, began to mute what he, those praises that just freely flowed. He used to be the worship leader for King Saul. And he would 
come in at night and sing these beautiful psalms and play his harp. None of that once he had this unconfessed sin. So we have to be careful. And, and until Nathan confronted him and he confessed his sin, then his pen started to flow again. Then the psalms began and then you read it. Psalm 51. See, unconfessed sin can affect us in that way. But rapid repentance, by the way, rapid repentance. You're going to mess up. You're going to do what's wrong. It's a sign that you're really seeking after God. And I feel bad. I feel really bad when I let a loved one down, especially my wife. I don't want to let people I love down. My family means so much to me. I don't know about you. But we still let them down sometimes, don't we? We still do things that is not good. And if I've slighted them, if I've hurt them, I don't want too much time to pass. Do you? I don't want to let it ride for weeks or months. But in our own family, we've seen where 11 years in one case, wasn't it? 11 years, people wouldn't talk to each other until somebody died. And that broke the silence. Isn't that a shame? That 11 years of life could go by. See, I'm not responsible for what I don't know. Okay? If I don't, if I don't know about something, if I did something that offended somebody, hurt them in my family, whatever, I'm not responsible for that. I'm just a goof. And I do that sometimes. And if someone's upset with me and I'm not aware, I need them to come and tell me. You're a goofball. You said this. You did that. You didn't do this. You didn't say that. You know, help me out, okay? Help each other out with that one. So if we don't know, we don't know. But when we have crossed the line with God, when we sinned against God, I have good news for you. Whether we know we sinned or not, he will let you know. The Holy Spirit is going to go like this. Hey, that is not right. And a lot of times our thing is, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, as I didn't offend them. They're just touchy. They'll get over it. Little things too, see, as well as the big things. I'm not talking about murder here. I'm just talking about things that we let ride between us and other people between us and God. The Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you, will let you know as a follower of Christ. And when we become aware, that's the moment we need to go to the rest of, we need to go back to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. And just use that according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. See, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it's a gift. It's not to make you feel bad. And you shouldn't be walking around with that guilt. We should just confess it like David did. See, David couldn't hide his sin. He couldn't quiet the guilt. He couldn't continue to live with what was inside of him. How long do you think he could have been an effective leader? He would have become like Saul. He would have become hard to other people, hard to God, self-centered, protecting himself. And see, David, because he has a heart for God, Nathan nails him with that story. David knows, God, I can't get away from you. Thank you. God actually did David a favor. It's like he pulled back a curtain and said, this is what you've been trying to hide. Is that it? Is that the sin you've been trying to hide here? Well, the curtain's drawn, David. We see it. What are you going to do about it? Why does God do that? Because he doesn't want you and me to suffer with the guilt. It's a gift. God wants us to enjoy this relationship with him. Not be like Adam and Eve. Hope he doesn't see us since we ate those apples. Or the fruit, rather. You know, we better cover up. Hide from God. No, we don't need to do that. We need to... When we feel the Holy Spirit speaking to us, that inner voice, as a follower of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit. 
So don't try to hide it. Don't try to quiet the guilt. Don't do, get busy. Don't fall into addictive habits to cover up those kinds of things. That's some of the reactions that we do. God doesn't want you to be miserable. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to live in his mercy. He wants you to enjoy this relationship with him. And then later in Psalm 51, I love this, verse 10. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. (laughs) Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't let that voice stop. I need that, God. I don't want to get so hard to you that you don't speak to me anymore. And he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I want to go back to where we were. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, God's not mad. He's not mad at us. Whether it's a big, obvious sin or it's a little secret sin, he's not mad. God sent his son Jesus to pay, to pay for our sin. To redeem us. And that's why in Hebrews it says, Let us approach God's throne of grace. Listen, with confidence so that we may receive what? Mercy. Say that. Mercy. What do we need? Mercy. When we do wrong, what is it? Mercy. So that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So God has provided everything that we need. And when we mess up, How do we recover? We go back to Him. When we sin, we go back to Him. There's a little song she's playing. I don't know if we can put the words up or not. Create in me a clean heart. It's taken right from Psalms. may not be the tune that David sang, but it's the very words that he wrote. I want you, as we sing this, I want you to close your eyes if you can. If you don't know the words and you want to look up here, that's fine too. But I want you to consecrate this moment. Just hang with me for a second and we'll be done. I want you to consecrate this moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And while you're singing, if you need to... I mean, this should be our prayer here. Create in me a clean heart. And as we're praying and singing this together, and we allow the Holy Spirit to work and speak to us, You can stop at any time and just tell God what you need to tell him. Do you need to confess something to him? Is he pulling back the curtain? Is he showing you what you've been trying to hide? If he does, I just want to encourage you. Listen, we're followers of Christ. This happens. David was the king of Israel. It happens. He was a man after God's own heart. It happens. Don't live in shame. Look at it and then confess it to God and let him restore the joy of your salvation. So let's sing this song and make it our prayer. Go ahead, Sandy. Create in me a A clean heart, oh God, God. and renew a right spirit. given us new life life abundantly so God help us not to live with secrets from you because it doesn't work you know about them help us God to live a very transparent life to where we are 
confessing to you those things in our life, Lord, so that we don't, those sins that will require more sin to cover them up. Don't let us fall into that trap. Don't let us go through those phases of being a sinner, living like a sinner when we're actually a child of the King. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation, eternal life. And we've we've accepted you as our Savior, many of us here. Many of those that might be watching through the video. God, help us to live a spirit-filled life, not a guilt-filled life, God. We just, we just surrender all these things to you now, God. We surrender those hidden things, those things that have caused guilt, that unforgiveness that maybe we have, the bitterness. God, whatever it is that's staying in there and we, we've been ashamed of it, you've pulled back the curtain today. And Lord, help us to just confess that to you. And thank you for your grace now. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the joy of serving you. Thank you, Lord, that you've restored us once again. We don't have to hide that. We don't have to live like that anymore. We're free. We are totally free. Give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad for Jesus Christ in your life, for what he's done? That we have this kind of relationship? It's wonderful. Well, I want to say goodbye to those who are watching through our video today. Thank you for joining us. And if you don't mind, if you would like, share our videos, like them, uh, follow our YouTube uh, channel or our uh, Facebook that would be great. Uh, it really helps us out and it helps spread the words of people that you are friends with. And um, I looked uh, this weekend, it's hard to believe, but we had uh, 700 people had watched videos over the past several weeks. So, you know, I'm like, that's amazing to me. So we appreciate you doing that. And uh, again, if you can and you're in the area, please stop in. These are really great people here. Aren't you great people? Yeah. Yeah, let's give yourselves a hand. Give yourselves a hand. Really loving, great people here, and we'd love you to meet them. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. The original version of this message can be found on our website at thelightingkent.com. For more information, you can also reach out to us at info at thelightingkent.com or message us on Facebook.